I was like, you know what? There's no point in being upset and defeated. It's not going to get anything done. So I started writing because I didn't know what else to do. Hello and welcome to The Common Room, a series of conversations between members of the Yale English Department. I'm Steph Newell. Today we're talking to Anna Ibrahim, who is an undergraduate majoring in English here at Yale. Anna is a Coptic Egyptian-American and Middle East North African People's Advocate. Among many other activities, she is the Middle East North African Students Association President, the Chair of the MENA Cultural House Committee, and an independent researcher on the US Census Bureau and its long-standing erasure of MENA people. Anna, welcome to the podcast and thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm an Egyptian-American student. I'm also Coptic, which adds a layer to my identity. But I guess we're just like the typical immigrant family, just loud and huge. There are like 150 people at every Christmas dinner. It's kind of funny because all of my family, every single one of them are doctors. There's no variance. It's all STEM. And I remember my junior year of high school, I decided that's not what I wanted to do. And it was kind of just like, well, then what are you going to do? <laughs> what else is there? I wonder what led you to decide to major in English and how does your family respond to that? I actually came in to Yale with the idea to do comparative literature. And then I took English 120, narrative nonfiction writing, basically. And I was like, oh, wait, I like really like this. This is up my alley and I feel most powerful and I feel my voice the most, not in academic writing, but in my opinion pieces that I'm sort of writing for this class or these long narrative pieces I'm writing for this class. And so I actually got involved even more heavily with Mina Advocacy because of that class, because one time I wrote a piece about it and I was like, oh, wait, this is actually a pretty good platform for me. Say a little bit more about your work as a MENA People's Advocate and also perhaps your journalism work, because you're very busy. I mean, you've got all the courses that you're doing, but also a huge amount of work as a journalist, reporter, advocate. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I came from a high school where I was like one of two Egyptian people and maybe one of five people from the MENA region in the entire school, which was middle through high school. And then I got to college and I knew the Arab Student Association and the Middle East North African Student Association. And I was like, okay, this has to be a big deal here. Like college is the place to kind of find people from the same region. And when I got to Yale, I remember I wrote my name down on the email list and then we had a meeting and the meeting was in like the Asian American Cultural Center. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like why the Asian American Cultural Center? And we went in and we had this like tiny room that like nobody wants to use. And there were like 10 of us in there. The first thing I said in the meeting was, can we get the Yale College Council to send out an email so that people who are MENA can identify as MENA so that we have a broader idea of who we need to talk to? And they were like, oh, we can't do that. Like Yale won't allow it because the U.S. Census doesn't mark us as a category. So Yale doesn't mark us as a category either. Any like MENA person you talk to when they're filling out the common application for college, it's a crisis because you don't know what to put. You don't know whether to put white. If you're from North Africa, do you put African-American from North African descent? Do you put Asian-American if you're from Iran or Pakistan? Like, what do you put? And we just get lost in the nomenclature of categorization. Nobody knows who we are. We don't know who we are because, like, there's no way to count us. So I think I left to that meeting just feeling, like, so defeated. I was like, there's nothing we can do. If the institution that's been here for so long can't recognize us, there's literally nothing we can do this far along. And so I was like upset about it. And then I was like, you know what, there's no point in being upset and defeated. It's not going to get anything done. So I started writing because I didn't know what else to do because the organization was so small. I wrote this piece called 6% for the Yale Herald, and it ended up gaining 
quite a bit of popularity and people from all over were emailing me like, oh, thank you for writing this, whatever, whatever. And then I had someone reach out to me from the University of Michigan and he was like, we should meet up and talk because I had a similar problem at the University of Michigan and we got recognition, like we got a checkbox. So we met up and he told me kind of how he did it. And then I was like, okay, this is actually possible. It's not just something to complain about, you know? And so I started a really core committee of professors and students to make a set of demands and a proposition to the YCC and get it passed by every single committee in the YCC and then go to the administration about it so that we get a drop down box on the common application so that we can identify the students when we get there and also just include Mina as a category for any survey that Yale College sends out. And then last year, I started doing research on the history of the U.S. Census Bureau, and I'm thinking of dedicating my entire summer to it this year. And just seeing the history of it and the racism, the discrimination, and why in 2020 we still didn't get a box. Is there a story about your own college experience alongside that that you would want to share with our listeners? Or would you say that that is your defining experience so far? I think the most triumphant moment was when I was emailing professors to be faculty advisors, and I was expecting most of them to say no. I think I was expecting most of them to be like, I have too much on my plate. I don't know much about this. This isn't established enough. And every professor that I emailed accepted and was like, yes, absolutely. And I think feeling the presence of faculty was just huge for me because I always felt like I was doing this alone. Even in the beginning of my presidency, I felt like the whole thing was on my shoulders because people don't want to get involved in something that they can't see an end to. People have been fighting for this for years. And it just kind of fell through the cracks. The overwhelming amount of support from students and faculty to like reignite the initiative was just so moving to me, especially because it's like, it's just so much more than getting the checkbox right. It's so much more than that. It's about fostering those relationships with each other on campus. And I know that in my time on campus, it probably won't change. Like we probably won't get a cultural house in my time. But like if by the end of my senior year, we're three or four steps ahead and the Yaleys that come later can find that community, it would blow me away, I think. We face so much layered racism on a daily basis and and we're lost in categorization, which makes this racism totally unfaceable. So I think it's just getting that committee together and actually having actionables is probably the highlight of my Yale career, if it wasn't posting 6%. Having people come up to me randomly and be like, oh, I read your piece. Like, that's just the best feeling ever because you just don't think that anyone's going to read a random opinion piece on the Herald. Yeah, these past couple months have been just a real, like, dream. It's been a struggle. It's felt defeating for sure, but, like, it's been so exciting to feel like we're actually finally getting somewhere and there are students and faculty that actually care about it. I have a far more general question for you, which is I'm wondering if you've got a favourite piece of writing or music or art that you'd like to tell us about and and to tell us why you love it as well. Pablo Neruda's poetry. I can't remember who the editor was, but he put together a collection of his poems that hadn't been published before. And those are my favourite poems. I've read that collection maybe 10 plus times. And it's inspired a lot of my poetry from when I was in high school. And then what's probably going to lead out on this podcast is Daniel Jang's violin covers. I can like hate one of the songs normally, and then he covers it with the violin and it's just absolutely beautiful. Like I've never not liked one of his covers. I think he like switches the genre of songs completely and he makes songs that otherwise might be fun or lighthearted. He like makes you feel the depth of them. 
Thank you, Anna, so much for being on the podcast. And thank you for listening to The Common Room. Our producer is Robert Scaramuccia, class of 19, and our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You also heard Daniel Jang's violin cover of Anyone by Justin Bieber.